Well, thanks for coming out tonight. I appreciate that. I was talking to my son beforehand. I said, I usually start to talk with a, a bad dad joke or something. And he said, don't do it. Don't embarrass me. So <laughs> He actually shortened my time so I wouldn't have time to tell a bad joke. Let me just say um, my, my part in this is to, uh, to frame what the, the issue is. And I'm gonna, I do it sociologically, so I'm not doing it politically or theologically, but sociologically, uh, to give us a sense of where are we currently. And then Dr. Stan will come up and give us the real meat. All right, so we're going to try to show PowerPoint here. And if we could go to the second slide. Yeah, next one. Beautiful. Okay. Um, the hard part with race relations, because we've always had issues, is that we think it's pretty much the same. Uh, but race relations has had three different time periods to it that coincide directly with the economy of our country. So what we'll learn is that uh, race relations fulfill a role within our economy. So when we have a plantation economy, way back when, then we had a specific kind of race relations, which we call the racial caste system, much like India had, and still has, right? You're born into a, a place or a location in the caste, and there you shall stay all your life. Doesn't matter what you achieve or what else you do, you'll always be in that caste. When slavery ends, we transition into two different new economies, mostly in the South, an agrarian economy, plantation economy, and mostly in the North, it industrializes. So in the South, you get what we call Jim Crow segregation. That's segregation by law between people of different racial groups. And in the North, you get de facto segregation. There aren't specific laws, but the result is the same. It's uh, segregation in fact. And usually it's done by living in different neighborhoods. Then you don't have to say you can't go to the same uh, you can't use the same water fountains, or you can't go to the same movie theaters because you just don't, because you're in very different parts of the city. So the North, uh, during this time, and still today, has higher segregation than the South, because that was the method it used. Now, starting in the 1960s, we started transitioning into a new economy, and then if you study the history of cities, you'll see that cities really took nosedives in the 70s and early 80s because we were de-industrializing. And they were losing their jobs overseas and elsewhere. But we were transitioning to a new kind of economy, what we're in today, which, as you can see, we call it the information economy or the creative economy, where we don't make things so much as we make ideas and then we send them to each other in the internet. And you can have multiple people making all their living and doing nothing but exchanging ideas, exchanging social media, things like that. In this system, a new kind of race relations has arisen, which we call the colorblind system of race relations. So we're going to look at how that operates. So if we go to the next slide, it just says, how does it work today? And the next slide, we're going to just, I just need to define one term. So we always have been a racialized society. But that form of racialization, as I said, has had three main components or movements in the U.S., but the meaning of it is always the same. It's where race will matter profoundly for our experiences, for our life opportunities, and for our relationships. I always say that who we marry is not random. It is definitely structured by race. It's still very rare, and much rarer than population numbers would suggest, that people will marry across the category called race. 
One of the things that race means wherever you see it in the world is it's a way to rank people groups by anything that the society uh, values, whether that be money or status, uh, respect, whatever. It is always has that meaning of ranking people groups. Okay, so I want to look at this racialized society in a few ways. One is, as a sociologist, sometimes we do weird things. So if we go to the next slide, I, I actually uh, have pictures of people here. And if you'll click one more time, these are the, the richest of the richest 400 Americans in 2015. Of course, Bill Gates being first. Um, I was curious, what is their racial background if you take the richest 400 Americans? So if you click one more time, it will tell you. And it reflects our racial hierarchy. Everything we look at basically has this hierarchy, white, Asian, Hispanic, African-American, and then usually forgotten completely Native American. One of the things I do is I collect studies, and when I find 10 or more studies finding a racial difference, I write that category down. So this, if you go to the next slide and click one more time, it should bring up all the areas in the US currently where we have racial division, where we are racialized. And I know if you're sitting way back there, you maybe can't see it, I'll read a few. You'll see that 39 of them come up and then I run out of room. Some things matter dramatically, like how long we'll live. It's very much structured by what race we're born into. Uh, our employment opportunities, things like that. Some are just interesting, like what we watch on TV. Turns out, if you look at the top 20 lists of what, say, white and black and Hispanic watch, the only things that overlap are if it has an interracial cast. If it's an all-white cast, that's what whites watch it, friends. If it's an all-black cast, mostly African-Americans watch it. So it, some things, like I said, are just interesting, they're different, some things matter quite a bit. All right, so how does race work today in this new system I talked about? It actually has four steps. I gotta make them rhyme. So we, if you'll go to the next slide, we decolorate, we segregate, we incarcerate, and we alienate. And I'm gonna look just briefly at each of these to give us a sense of what do I mean by these. So decolorate really comes out of the 1960s and the whole discussion about race should no longer matter, that we ought to be post-racial. And indeed, even borrowing on Martin Luther King saying that we would someday I dream my children would be judged by the content of their character rather than by their color. But the way it gets translated is that race, you cannot talk about it, because race is not supposed to matter anymore. So that a colorblind society comes about. Even if there are inequalities, we have to say they're not there. Um, if you'll click one more time, I like to express it this way. It's where the problem is all behind us now. All right. Bad dad joke, sorry. <laughs> Segregate. So we have had segregation uh, in our previous installment of Jim Crow and de facto. Segregation has continued. Um, it's, it's a quieter way now. We have Fair Housing Act and all of that. So people are allowed to live where they want, but it turns out if you don't like the people you're living near, you move. So I'm gonna illustrate that just a little bit. If you'll go to the next slide, I'm gonna be showing you a couple of different cities, and it's by neighborhood, the racial makeup of the city, where people live. So where you see red here, this is Detroit. Uh, I start with Detroit because it's basically just black and white, so very, very clear. Where the red is, that's African-American neighborhoods. Where the blue is, those are white neighborhoods. And you really don't have much in between, right? So it's very clear where you're supposed to live depending on your race. 
Uh, if you'll go to the next one, Milwaukee. Milwaukee, I choose because it also has Hispanic population. So very clear African-American part of town, the north side of Milwaukee. South of downtown is where Hispanic Latinos live, and then whites dominate all around the edges. Um, what if you went to a city that's way more multiracial, kind of the ultimate poster child of the desegregated, post-racial society, Los Angeles? Let's look at them. Well, it turns out that Los Angeles is much bigger and much more diverse, but just as segregated. Um, so you have, you can see that, hopefully, some very small red areas. Uh, those are the African-American communities. LA is just 7% African-American, so it doesn't take a whole lot of neighborhoods. The largest swath is if you're Hispanic, very specific areas you live. If you see green, those are actually Asian neighborhoods, all concentrated by one another. And then still, whites tend to be concentrated all around into their neighborhoods. Well, how about Kansas City? You probably know this better than me. If you go to the next one. Uh, I couldn't find a good map. It's really light. But if you'll click one more time, I'm going to put a line on truce. And uh, on one side, African-American, and on the other side, not so much. So of course, there's a story here. Right? It doesn't just happen this way. There's a history for why city after city after city, it's like this. Let me talk to you about our experience. When Anthony was eight, we lived, moved to Houston, Texas. So if you go to the next slide. We moved to this neighborhood that was brand new, actually moved on a cul-de-sac. Again, I'm a sociologist. I did something weird. I know the race of everybody that lives in every house. <laughs> and so I made my little map and wrote it down. <laughs> so where you see the line that's pointing to where the Emersons lived, Anthony is three uh, siblings his mother and I. And the thing is, um, I was surprised. We had always lived in the north, now we moved to the south, and it seemed like this is pretty diverse. If you click one more time, categorizing it by race, 32% black, 19%, 18% Hispanic, 27% Asian, and 23% white. It's like, wow, that's pretty interesting. So I thought maybe it's a different thing here in Houston. But it turns out that this is a, a neighborhood that because it was brand new, nobody knew whose it was supposed to belong to. Okay. So over time, it gets sorted out. I'm going to show you again, six sociologists. I kept track of who moved and what race left and what race moved in. So five years later, actually, we took a job. I took a job at Notre Dame, so we moved up north. And um, next slide will show you with that splotch, every house that had a move, and then we were the the move there where the arrow still is. Okay, so show me the racial mix if you click one more time. Still racially mixed, but when we left, we were the last whites there after just five years. So one of the things we have found in research is you can have racially mixed neighborhoods over time, but they, can't, they don't include whites. Whites eventually leave for different reasons. Now, I, I asked every white that left why they left, and nobody left for racial reasons, at least what they told me. They all left for different reasons. But that doesn't matter so much as the big thing we find is that when places are very diverse, white folks aren't very interested in moving to those neighborhoods. So this is the process you see happening. Um, this is one block. We moved into a development with block after block, thousands of homes. Exact same thing happened block after block. So that this neighborhood now, you know, many years later, still is diverse, but there aren't any whites yet living there. Okay. Now, why does this matter? If you go to the next slide. 
One of the problems that I tell my students, because my students will typically say, so what? People can live where they want to live. That's no big deal. And it wouldn't be a big deal except because of our history, combining with segregation produces something very important. If you'll click again, this is showing poor people in the United States that live in metropolitan areas. Now, if you're poor and white, click one more time. What it shows you is that the most common kind of neighborhood that you live in, if you're poor and white, is that you live in non-poor neighborhoods. Neighborhoods that are less than 20% poor. How about if you're black or Hispanic, you can see from the pictures, if you keep clicking one more time, you get the mere opposite, the absolute opposite. So that to be poor is racialized in our country. You have a very different experience of your individual poverty. You're either going to live with a whole lot of poor people or not, and it's going to be shaped by your race. Now, why would that be? Two things. One is that because of our history, we have very differential amount of access to wealth. We have inequality in income and wealth, and I'll show you that in a moment. But that wouldn't matter unless we had the second thing, racial segregation. If we didn't have racial segregation, that level of inequality would be equally distributed among neighborhoods. Every neighborhood would absorb a certain percent poor. But because we segregate by race and we have inequality by race, you have to get this result. It's, it, you can't do anything but get this result. Okay, so we'll go to the next slide. Now, part of what I just showed you has real implications for building wealth in the United States. The main way that Americans build wealth is they buy homes, and those homes increase in value. That has been the main way middle-class Americans have made money. There's a great study done in Milwaukee, 1971 to 1993, very painstaking research, but a researcher said, going back to 1971, say, what if you bought a home that was worth $40,000, if you'd click again, in 1971, if you still live there in 1993, what is your home worth? Okay, so what he found that, one more click here, if you're white, your home is now worth 250000 You made well over $200,000 by living there for 20 years. And if you were black, your home was now worth, ooh, 32000 So you actually lost. So they did the same actions, but look at the difference in wealth that happened just by living in homes. All right, so like when I show this to students, you know that most of my students weren't even born by 1993, so that seems like I'm talking about the 1930s or something. <laughs> so I have my graduate students at Rice University do the same painstaking research, but for the last 10 years in Houston. So let's look at what they found. And they actually got even more sophisticated. If you click one more time, using fancy stats, they're able to hold the neighborhood things that might vary constant, that they don't change. So there's going to be no variation in the quality of the schools in the neighborhoods. And don't worry about how they do it. Just trust that it, you can actually do this. No variation in how long it takes you to commute to work. And no variation in, in the actual poverty rate. So we're even holding that constant. OK, the only thing that varies, if you click one more time, is, that, is the, the racial composition of the neighborhood. Is it 85% or more white, black, or Hispanic? All right, so if you bought a home in 2005, sold it in 2015, what was your net profit? Click again. For white neighborhoods, you made $82,000 over that 10 years. For Hispanic neighborhoods, one more time, you lost 4,400. And black neighborhoods, you lost 26,500. 
Okay, so let me illustrate this personally. If you'll click to the next slide. Here's our neighborhood in Houston during this period. One more click, please. Basically a black community, 80%, 16% Hispanic, and 4% other, mostly the Emersons and their children. <laughs> I believe our four children were the only white children in the neighborhood. Um, so we moved there in 2006, if you go to the next slide. In 2012, I got my position sent me to Denmark, and I was going to live there, so the family was moving there. So we were first going to rent the house out, but they said, you're not going to be able to rent it out for what you would need to pay your mortgage. So we decided that we, should, we need to sell it. Okay, so we bought the house in 2006 for $273,000. When we were to sell it, we got someone to agree to pay $225,000. So you can see we're already going to lose money. But we only owed like two hundred five dollars on it, so at least we can pay off the mortgage. Now, if you've ever sold a home or bought a home, you know that the next step is your home has to be appraised. The appraisal um, said, your house isn't worth $225,000, it's worth $160,000. The interesting thing about our appraisal is nobody came to look at our home. It could have been trashed, it could have been beautiful, it didn't matter. All they did was say, look at your neighborhood, how many square feet do you have, what's the average price per square foot in your neighborhood, that's what your house is worth. So that came to $160,000, so we could only sell it for that. All right, so if you click again, and again maybe, so we were finally able to sell it in 2012 in December, right? So 160000 so one more time. Our net profit, we lost $113,000 on our house. One more slide, please. I want to show you what, what and here's what I didn't know. Okay, so all right, we lose $113,000 on the house. We move to Denmark, we come back, we rent the house for a year because we're not sure if we're staying in Houston or doing what we eventually did, which was move to Chicago. So we moved to Chicago, and we want to buy a house. So we apply for a loan. Been owning homes for over a quarter of a century, never missed a payment, all of that. So apply, and I get a call from the mortgage company. They said, um, most things look good here, but did you uh, default on a house payment or something? I said, no. Well, it, says, it says here you did a short sale. So, well, yeah, we had to sell the house for less than we owed because we were told that's all we could do. Well, unfortunately, sir, the federal government says that you cannot have a loan until at least four years after that. So now this hadn't been four years yet. Okay, so we could rent or we could do what we actually did, which is we talked to some people and said, what could we do? They said, well, maybe if you go with a local Chicago bank, they'll kind of not follow the government, national government rules. <laughs> Chicago, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we tried many, got close a couple times, but they eventually all said no. My uh, wife really had her heart set on having a house. So we did something that's financially so stupid, but you get forced into these things. So one, we found someone willing to give us a loan for half the amount of the house. Now here's the deal, it's quiet between us. It's an offshore bank that's probably on a ship somewhere in the South Seas. I don't know where it actually exists, but they, it's a non-US company that gave us half the loan. The other half of the money, we had to raid our retirement account. Stupid, right? But there's the only way we could get into the house. But if this, at this point, it had been about three years. If we can just hold on for a year, we can then get a regular loan 
and we'll be okay. All right, so that four-year period came last month. All excited, we can finally get a regular loan. So I had a company waiting, gonna tell me when it's time. And then they call me and say, um, we can't give you the loan. I said, what do you mean? Well, it says here that your credit rating isn't worthy enough because you had a short sale four years ago. So anyway, all that to say, the continuing impact is we still can't get a regular loan. All right, so you can see the impact of housing values and what people say housing is worth. I've since had my graduate students researching how do appraisers appraise and make values, and it turns out it's extremely tied to race. It turns out when you have white realtors selling white homes, there's a big influence where the white realtor will say, we need this home to be valued at such and such and they're much more likely to make it valued at such and such. Okay, now what does this, why does this matter? If you go to the next slide. Ultimately for our wealth differences. Okay, so in 2002, the average black American, when you take everything they owe minus everything they own, what do they have left? $6,000. Hispanic net worth, $8,000. How about for white? 90000 so if you click again, we'll look at the ratios. So in 2002, the average white had a little over 11 times the wealth of Hispanic that had actually grown since 1988. And then for the white-black, it was 15 times the wealth. And that had grown from about 12. Okay, but again, I mean, 2002 to most students, that's a long time ago. Let's update it a little bit. I have two ways to update it. There's this great study that comes out of the University of Michigan. They followed the same black and white families over time since 1984. The latest data they've released is 2007, and what they do is the whole study is designed to, to follow wealth. So they're even uh, measuring the worth of people's rings, so that, that detailed in, in, in calculating wealth. So here's what they found. If you go to the next slide, yeah, a fourfold increase in the gap between black and white. So it looks like this. Next slide. Okay, so there's a slight change in black wealth over that period. Not a whole lot. How about for white wealth? Wow. Why? Because their homes are going up in value, because it takes money to make money, so if you have more money to start with, and you're both making 5% interest, you end up with more money, the gap grows. Okay, so there's real implications. Um, let's update it one more time to 2012, the latest data from the government. Okay. Whites have 50% more wealth than Asians, 18 times more wealth than Hispanics, and 20 times more wealth than African Americans. The gap just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And unless we figure out some way to arrest this gap, that's gonna be the reality that we're in. Just because of the way that money is made and reproduced in the US. Uh, I've just got a, four quick slides on the church because we are racialized as well. If you go to the next slide, please. Next slide after that. As of 2017, 86% of all congregations in the United States are racially homogenous, filled primarily with one group. Next slide. How does that compare to other things? We know how segregated our, our neighborhoods are, so we actually took uh, thousands of congregations and compared them to the neighborhoods, so the diversity in the congregations to the diversity of the neighborhoods they sit in, and what we found is that churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're sitting in. So if we just reflected our neighborhoods, it would be a major change. And then compared to our public schools, 20 times 
less diverse or 20 times more segregated than our public schools. Um, it does have impact where you worship. One of the things we wondered is our friendships. Who do we know? Who do we say are our friends we spend time with, we like to hang out with? So we actually did a national survey. We're categorizing people into three categories. Do you go to a same race congregation where everybody's the same race, basically? Do you not go anywhere to worship? Or do you go to an interracial congregation? And you can see here, so what these numbers mean. If you go to a same race congregation at the very top there, all means everybody, yeah? 83% of all people that go to same race congregations say most or all my friends are the same race as me. If they don't go anywhere, it actually goes down because there's one less plane of segregation to experience, so it's 70%. But if you go to interracial congregation, it plummets. Only 36% say most or all my friends are the same race. Uh, what I'm showing you the below is that for every group, that exact same pattern happens. So we really wondered, like, maybe people that had diverse friends went to diverse congregations, and that's what's happened. So we went and interviewed people all over the country and asked them, did your friendships happen before or after? And so for 80% of the people, they said it was after they came to the congregation, they met people they otherwise wouldn't have met, who introduced them to other people they wouldn't have met, and that's how their networks diversified. Okay, let's just do a few more slides here so we can turn it over. Our third step is incarcerate. If you'll go to the next slide. Uh, just one book that will give you everything you need to know on, the, on this area, The New Jim Crow, which is very interesting. The subtitle, which you probably can't see, is Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. So what she's arguing here is that in our new racial system that comes with our new economy, we end up with something like what Jim Crow did, but we use incarceration to do that, and the next slide will show you why this is her argument. The problem is that if you're convicted of a drug offense or imprisoned, and the ratio, the rates since 1980 when we decided to change how we prosecute drugs and such, everybody's skyrocketed. We're now the most imprisoned population in the, in, the, in the world, by far, well past Russia and other countries. Um, I think whites are eight times as likely to be imprisoned as they were in 1980, but for black and Hispanic, it's like 25 times more. Here's the problem. So when you're imprisoned with a drug offense or sent to prison for some other reason, you no longer can ever qualify for student loans. So you're not going to go on and get an education, most likely. You cannot live in public housing. You can't serve on juries. You have to wait at least 12 years to vote. You're severely limited in your employment opportunities. I mean, who wants to hire a felon, right? You're much more likely to be sent back to prison because you're sort of limited in what you can do. And ultimately, she says, you're, you're, you're in this closed system where you are permanently a second-class citizen. You're not fully an American citizen. And that's her argument for why she calls it the new Jim Crow. The last step is what we call alienate. And I am not trying to be political here. I just want to say that what we do with immigrants is what we always do any time in our history. When we want to make an argument against certain people, we make them not human. Um, that's always been part of it. That's what we did with slavery. So that the words we use, we'll always say illegal alien. I, I read today in the news, now a new term, criminal aliens. We don't say people, right? Okay, so this introduces something that's new in our current system, hasn't existed before. In our old system, 
you got more rewards or less rewards in society. And if you click one more time, again, because of race, we rank, and that was basically white and black. But since the 1960s, we changed our immigration law, rapidly growing Hispanic and Asian. We've introduced a new plane of race here. If you click, it is how American or how foreign are you? So those two groups, if you'll click one more time, they're ranked at different levels of getting society's goods, but they're always perpetually foreign. Whether they're first generation or fourth generation, they're still seen as not fully American. Okay, so that's a whole different level of alienation. All right, let's summarize here. So our four steps, decolorate, segregate, incarcerate, and alienate. And do I have two minutes more? Okay. We, uh, you mentioned this book, Divided by Faith. I'm just going to summarize it in two slides. We were looking at how do Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, which I imagine most of us are, how do we think about race in America? And what we found is that we have the same faith, but we think about it dramatically different depending on our race. So for white evangelicals, when we say, what is the race problem? This is what the race problem was. The race problem is people being sinful individually and uh, misinterpretation. So we may see people arguing and we think that that's a race problem because it's people of two different races when really it's just two people arguing. It's this division then between individuals. So it's always individualized, relationalized. And it's also, this came up a lot, the race problem is self-interested minorities. It's people like perhaps Jesse Jackson. See, he makes money by making race a problem. So he's self-interested. And he, he is the cause of the racial problem. So that came up a lot. Okay, let's compare then to uh, evangelicals of color. They didn't talk that way. They talked mostly that this way. The race problem is unequal access to education, to neighborhoods, to resources, and then systematic discrimination in, in all kinds of areas, right? It's in the criminal justice system, in housing, neighborhoods, banking, employment, and so on. Let me just show you what it looks like then today. I actually wrote that book 17 years ago. I wish it were no longer true, but it just keeps happening. What does Divided by Faith look like today? So this was a survey done by uh, Lifeway, research company, Christian company, this is before the election, so they were trying to predict who's going to vote for whom among Christians, white evangelical Christians and black evangelical Christians. So for whites, 65% they predicted would vote for Trump, and then for the other ethnicities, Christians, 62% would vote for Clinton. Then we can see what actually happened with exit polls, and it was actually more extreme. 80% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, 80%, well over 80% of African-American evangelical Christians voted for Clinton. Doesn't matter, I'm not trying to argue who you should vote for, I'm trying to say that race takes our faith and actually pushes us in very different directions and we prioritize things differently, ultimately voting for very different people. Okay, um, if you just go to the next slide, we're going to make our transition to Dr. Stan. Thank you so much, I appreciate it.